Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. We bring you interviews with professionals in the movement and exercise field. The goal is to provide information for other professionals and also amateur movement aficionados, people who understand that movement, it's part of what makes life complete. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well known in and outside of the movement and exercise profession. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. To paraphrase biomechanist Dr. Stuart McGill, many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. We're going to give you the chance to learn from some of these talented and knowledgeable individuals, and we're going to learn along with you. Moving to Live podcasts are going to be short. Each interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single bout during your commute, workout, or even during dinner prep. We all like long-form interviews, but time is valuable. Moving to Live wants to give you the option to learn and be entertained without needing to commit 60-plus minutes at a time for an interview. Give Moving to Live a listen. Check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH. FitLab PGH highlights people, locally-owned businesses, and events in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that understand that movement, it's part of what makes your life complete. Moving to Live would love to hear from you. Want to connect with us or have an idea for somebody that you think we should interview? Then drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com or connect with us on social media, Twitter and Instagram, both at underscore mov2liv. We're excited to bring you these interviews and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. We are back for our second part of our interview with Rick Howard. Rick is an active NSCA member. I reached out to Rick to be interviewed for Moving to Live because I see on social media he's very active with presentations and publications, specifically in regards to correct training of youth and adolescent athletes. I also know he is a co-author of the National Strength and Conditioning Association's Long-Term Athletic Development Position Stand. And for those of you who are not familiar with all these acronyms, the National Strength and Conditioning Association, or NSCA, is the premier organization in the world for disseminating information on correct strength and conditioning. So if you are a youth coach or you are a parent who has kids who are athletes, this has information that directly impacts you and gives you the tools that you need to understand what your coaches are doing or maybe question what they're doing if you have information that you're able to share with them. And I wanted to bring Rick back for a second interview so that people who were not in the exercise science, health promotion, youth training field could gain from his expertise. Rick, thank you for taking time to speak with us for a second time. Hey, Ben, thanks for having me back. I really appreciate the opportunity. So you can go back two weeks in Moving to Live, and you can listen to our first part interview with Rick, where Rick told us his history and how he got to the area. But Rick is somebody who is very active as a practitioner, working with youth athletes on a variety of levels. He presents on it. And I wanted to spend some time with Rick talking about his advice to both youth coaches who maybe don't have the background in the field, but get forced into it because it's like, well, you're a parent, you need to be a coach, or they just enjoy working with kids and want a little bit more knowledge so that they can train their people correctly. So Rick, I guess my first question for you is, 
what is the number one piece of advice that you would give to people who are working with youth who maybe don't have the educational background that you or I have? You know, that they're doing it because they want to work with children or because they have children, they want to be involved with their children's activities. Uh, first piece of advice then would be always remember their kids. So we might look at it in a different context as adults. You know, when you ask a kid after a contest, the first thing the parents or adults usually ask the kid is, did you win? Uh, kids don't really care about winning or losing as much. They will forget that as quickly as the game ended. But what they really want you to ask them is, did you have fun? Or how did you feel after the game? Or what are your thoughts on playing whatever sport it might be? They're a little bit more focused on being kids and enjoying the process. We're, as adults, a lot more focused on the overall product. What were the victories? Are you going to make the playoffs? Are you on the championship team? And that, for a lot of kids, really puts a lot of pressure on them to perform rather than enjoy getting in better shape or enjoy learning more skills and techniques and getting to that next level. And with your area of expertise, what is the age where parents should start asking their kids, you know, did you win versus did you have fun? Or, it, or rather, when should did you win become the first question? Or does it never become the first question? Yeah, it's kind of an interesting question. I have not seen a whole lot of research out there that says, all right, around the time that this, you could say that. But typically, you would think it would be around the age where kids can specialize. And most of the positions on that say that it's roughly around the ages of 14 or 15. So kind of at the high school level is when they really focus on winning and, and that type. Because kids are now getting a little bit more selective and which activities they want to spend more time in. It should be throughout childhood, at least, probably up through age 12 or so, or grade 8, that they're actually being exposed to so many different opportunities. And we often kind of look at it that it should be a little bit more of a festival atmosphere of looking at kids' skill development and their enjoyment of what they're doing, more so than saying, you know, my child is the under-10 soccer champ. You know, how many baseball players ever were World Series champs is always something that we refer back to because it's a very, very small list. If you look at the list of top tennis players who were ranked in the top 100 under age 12, very few of them go on to pro tennis. So there's not a really direct link between playing an exceptionally great season at a younger age and future performance. So we need to remember that when we're working with kids so that we can point them in the right direction. I know the NSCA's position paper on long-term athletic development discusses the importance of a variety of activities. We're recording this shortly after the NFL draft for 2017 occurred, and I know you probably saw what I saw, the number of top draft choices that played multiple sports in high school. And I think you hit on something really, really key a few moments ago where you said, uh, essentially, specialization in a sport isn't really good until the age of, I believe you said about 14. And could you explain to parents or people who are coaches and want to push a kid to spend more time playing a specific sport, why you avoid the specialization prior to about the age of 14? There are a couple of key reasons. One of them is overuse injuries from always playing one sport, often requiring youngsters to move in one direction primarily without developing the necessary skills to move in many different directions. The other one is establishing what we refer to as field sense. So they used to look at that almost in the uh, reaction time category of skills fitness. They've kind of taken that away. But what I mean by that is that oftentimes kids only have one set of skills by playing one sport. 
So if they end up not playing that particular sport or, you know, all of a sudden your child decides that he or she doesn't want to play that sport anymore, what opportunities have you created for your kids to continue to play sports and to be active? So what we are encouraging parents to do with their children is to make sure that they play a variety of sports. So soccer is an example where you're using a lot of footwork, a lot of agility, but not necessarily a lot of upper body. So maybe you'd want to play lacrosse play basketball, football, whatever, but go through a variety of different sports so that you can develop that sense of where you are in space, where others are in space. And basically what you're looking at doing is being able to reinforce the motor skill patterns that kids need to be successful no matter what sport they end up choosing. If you limit the number of motor skills they develop as youngsters, they have much more limited abilities to transfer that into sports as they get older. Would it be correct to say that you don't want kids to specialize at a young age so that they can work on becoming athletes rather than a really good soccer player or basketball player? Yeah, that, that would be very correct to state, although there's a caveat to that. There are some sports, gymnastics is often thought of, that are classified as early specialization sports. But if you don't focus on gymnastics at a relatively early age, you won't be as successful in, in the prime ages of gymnastics which is kind of around high school. So it's like early developing sports, high school, college age for gymnasts. We used to look at it from the framework that most of our Olympic athletes would reach their developmental time frame somewhere between the ages of 25 and 28. So when we looked at it contextually that way, we'd say, well, that's the developmental place we need to go. And if you look at professional sports now, and uh, I think tennis and golf are kind of showing us that older people are now starting to win. If you look at the Olympics and swimming, the last Olympics, we had several competitors well into their 30s winning Olympic gold medals. So what we really are looking for here is to have more longevity of our athletes to continue to perform well. And if we isolate them to get them to excel in one sport at an early age, oftentimes, like we said earlier, that repetitive motion could lead to injury that we really don't want. It could also lead to them being focused in only one direction without learning all of the skills and abilities to play a variety of sports. And I know one of your mentors is Avery Fagenbaum, who is extremely well-known worldwide for his research on child fitness. And I believe he says the specialization is a bad idea because it creates kids who, if they aren't good enough in that one sport, they creates kids who are inactive or don't exercise at all. Yeah, exactly right. You know, a lot of his research was on strength training too. And, you know, a lot of times that becomes ignored and we're training our kids. They get so focused on actually playing the sport that they don't learn any of the other skills, that they don't develop the strength they need. And that's part of why the injury rate goes up when they're specializing. They're just doing one thing. And, you know, we often try to equate this to other subjects in school. And can you imagine the parent that says, you know, my, my seven-year-old is pretty good at math. So we're not going to have him or her go to English class science anymore. We're just going to math. We would, you know, we laugh at that. We say, gosh, that's awfully silly. But in a sports context, it's quite the opposite. We say, oh, we, could, we only have to have them focus on this one particular sport so that they could get to that elite level. Like you mentioned, when they looked at the NFL draft and they showed this across the baseball draft, um, Urban Meyer at Ohio State is well known for his statistics that he put out that all of his recruits played at least two sports before being uh, given an opportunity to play there. So we see it all across the board. 
that the more opportunities we give our kids, not only does it increase their chances of reaching the elite level, it increases their chances of being increases their chances of being physically active throughout the rest of their lives. Those seem to be two really good goals rather than running that risk. Everybody looks at the old Tiger Woods scenario and say, well, he started playing golf at such an, an early age. He kind of peaked early when you look at it in golf terms. He's not as competitive as he once was. He's kind of burned out, as they would say, at a relatively early age for golf. And although we don't know exactly what's going on with Tiger Woods, it appears that he has body parts, specifically his back, that are wearing out from long-term emphasis in a single sport or a single motion. It could be said true because, you know, golf swing, you don't swing in both directions. You're only swinging one way. And we don't know what, you know, the context of what his training looked like and how he's protected himself over the years. But you can just imagine that by not developing all of his fundamental motor skills, there is a deficiency somewhere. And kind of an idea, just because you're a great golfer or a great tennis player, the lack of athleticism may cause problems farther down the line. And, you know, it's supposed to be the kid's choice at some point in time. Just, you know what, I've tried all these different sports, and while they're all wonderful, I found out that now as I'm reaching maturity and know kind of like how tall I'm going to be, what I'm going to weigh, what I'm good at, this is where I want to go. You know, if that's kind of self-selected, not self-selected, but selected by your parents, when you're younger, you might not be placed into the one that's going to optimize your abilities as you get older. You know, a kid might end up getting taller than you predicted, might not get as heavy as you predicted, and... And we see that a lot in uh, like high school football, where kids have been playing football since they were eight or nine years old. Gosh, they never got taller than five foot three and 130 pounds. And that's, that's kind of their maturity. Like, I'm going pro. And we're like, well, you know, if you're done growing, that's probably not going to happen. We don't want to say it's definitely not going to happen. But, you know, based on the uh, laws of averages, it's, it's not as, as likely as, as parents would hope. And you've made a convincing case and supported it with uh... – research, including the long-term athletic development paper for not specializing. And yet, if you look at youth sports across the board, there is increased specialization. I think I've seen travel teams for soccer where they're playing 30, 40 weeks out of the year, specifically soccer. As a parent who has a kid who maybe is an early maturer and they pick soccer as their first sport and they happen to be good at it, What's your advice to the parent to combat the coach who says, oh, you know, you need to get your kid training. They need to do specialized training for soccer. They could be really, really good. And they're only eight years old. And they're only eight years old. Well, they're good already. You want to make sure you maintain that and not reduce the risk or not reduce the chances that they're not going to continue to be good at soccer. And, you know, you look at all the other things that kids do. They, they love to be active. They love to move around and try different things. So why not find other sports that either complement soccer or provide some of those skills that you might not get in soccer? You know, why not try lacrosse in a different season or try basketball or, or try swimming or gymnastics or just learn how to do the other sports because they find that it's the overall athleticism, not the athletic skills in one specific sport that really carry kids over the top. And sometimes I know if you've got a coach who's got a best player or one or two players are really good and you're a parent, it's hard to combat or, or come up with a realistic argument to that coach of why your son or daughter shouldn't continue to play just that sport. Do you have any recommendations for that parent on how they can convince the coach that you know their son or daughter still wants to play that sport, but they're also going to do other activities and not do the 50 weeks out of the year, for example, of youth baseball? You know, that, that's the, the one where you really bring in that early sports specialization argument that there's so many overuse injuries to kids 
who are only moving in that one direction. Uh, baseball is a great example. You know, there's not too many switch hitters in baseball. They're usually swinging in one direction, throwing with one hand, not the other hand. So they're they're not learning a large variety of skills. They're not really getting a great cardiovascular workout, for example. You know, the, the base paths in baseball are not that far apart. So how do we get kids to learn all of the different attributes of fitness? And it's within the position statement. And uh, doctors uh, Lloyd and Oliver came out with what they call the composite youth development model that shows that all fitness attributes, which are, you know, just not just muscle strength, but muscle endurance, balance, agility, power, all these different attributes need to be continuously trained across childhood and adolescence. And if you're only playing one sport, you are just so focused on two or three of these attributes that you're really neglecting the other ones, which could lead to overuse, which could lead to injury. You know, I, I saw the other day there's actually kids whose parents are getting them preemptive Tommy John surgery. They haven't even hurt themselves yet, but they think that will strengthen their elbow enough so they'll be able to last longer and throw longer. I'm like, wow, has it really reached that level? So parents are not really sometimes serving their kids in their best interest, I think. For those listeners who don't know what the Tommy John surgery is, it's named after the baseball pitcher Tommy John, who was the first person to have it done successfully. It's a reconstruction of the ulnar collateral ligament. It seems with long-term pitching, you can damage that little bit ligament, so they have to reconstruct that ligament. And it's a fairly significant surgery, and unfortunately, I think there's quite a bit of research out there showing that uh, children who specialize in baseball, especially if they're pitchers, may be 13 or 14 and have to have that surgery. Exactly. And, you know, so now they're trying to preemptively do it ahead of time before they get hurt to try to strengthen it so they can keep playing. Because while a lot of baseball organizations have put in rules to manage pitch counts per se – if that athlete is playing on two or three different teams and that pitch count is for each team, not over all of the different teams that he or she is playing on. So while they might be managing a pitch count for each program, still doing way too much pitching for what's recommended for his or her age and throwing. I know the argument some parents would throw at you for that is say, well, you know, my son or daughter plays this specific sport, but they also go to a personal trainer who does sports-specific training. How would you explain to them that just because they play the one sport and do sports-specific strength and conditioning, that's not as good as doing multiple activities? Yeah, it's that same argument again that we're talking about here, Ben. If you talk about sports-specific training, uh, it should be sports-relevant. Like, look at the different things that are missing within that program. That's what really needs to be focused on. A lot of times parents will take these kids to a trainer who will continue to train the same movement pattern in training as they're doing in their particular sport. So they're still not getting that broad-based variety, general conditioning. And if you look at the literature, most kids really need to spend most of their time in general physical preparation, working all of their different fitness attributes. You know, just because the kid is somewhat fast doesn't mean you always have to make him or her faster at the expense of their cardiovascular conditioning, which will affect, if nothing else, at least it affects their recovery so that they can continue to play better. The kids really need to get general conditioning much more than the specific conditioning while they're only playing a sport. It doesn't give kids the time to actually play. You know, there are three different types of play. Structured play is when they're playing a sport, and kids are so focused on that, or at least their parents are so focused on putting them in that, they don't really give kids that time for kids to be kids and to do non-structured play, just to go out and have fun, just to try to do different things, because a lot of times parents get concerned that, oh my gosh, if I let uh, my son or daughter go out and ride their bikes or go play with their friends. They can fall down and hurt themselves, and then they won't be able to play the sport anymore. So it's kind of a shame we've gotten that far, too. 
I know that you're an active NSCA member, and one of your recreational activities is strongman training. So a question that I think that you're well-equipped to answer is, at what age should parents consider starting some sort of resistance training with their children, and what should it be? That's a great question. And uh, being active in the NSA, we all refer back to, and it, it was last updated in 2009, NSA has the position statement on resistance training. Uh, we took that position statement in 2015, and in the British Journal of Sports Medicine, we created a consensus statement around strength training for kids that got the endorsement of the American Academy of Pediatrics, National Strength and Conditioning Association, American College of Sports Medicine, several different groups who are influential that can tell parents that, you know what, kids should be strength training. The age at which they can begin is often thought of as the same age in which they become interested in sports, which for most kids is around seven or eight years old. So that doesn't mean they have to be doing a heavily structured program where they're focusing on figuring out how much weight they can lift once and then basing a program off of that. But rather, they should be looking at how do you develop strength at a young age because muscle strength has been shown to be one of the key fitness attributes for success in sports. It helps athletic performance while reducing the risk of injury. You know, we can never say that we're going to take away injury altogether, but it does help to reduce that risk. So kids should be put on a general fitness program or at least encouraged to do that in my environment, I often for kids in more of a play setting. So if I have them, you mentioned strongman, we actually have a, a like 110 pound tire. We use it for tug of war. So we'll get, depending on the age and fitness level, we'll get two or three kids on each side of the tire and they try to pull it over a line. Well, it doesn't go straight like a rope does either. So there's movement in many different directions, up and down, side to side, for example. And it's still more muscular endurance because it'll often take two, three to five minutes for one team to pull the other team over. So we make it fun, but it still has some type of a structure to it so that they know that by showing up, by respecting the equipment, sharing the responsibility for putting weights back that they use, et cetera, they kind of create that culture and atmosphere that strength training is fun, it's good, but it has to be done correctly. And I would think by making it a play atmosphere, you also bring into play, pun intended, the opportunity to move in different planes, which they don't get if they specialize in a single sport. Exactly. And I, I use the focus that I have my own ADCs of movement and the C is the cardinal planes of movement because most kids who are playing a sport are, like we said before, they're only moving in that one direction or that one movement pattern. And this gives them an opportunity. Uh, a friend of mine did a presentation a couple of weeks ago that I was attended and he's talking about how um, to get faster, you either have to chase or be chased. So we have, we agree with that and, and use a lot of different fun games. And often I'll let the kids pick the game. You know, whoever wins the last game gets to pick the next game. Or sometimes we'll say whoever had the best technique in running gets to pick the next game. So it's not always the winner that gets to pick either. It's either the one who, you know, tried hard or the one who has really good technique. So we vary that up so that they see that all of these different skills and abilities are important in sports and in fitness. And I think it's also showing an example of healthy competition versus unhealthy competition. Well, exactly. You no, know, nobody really cares that you're the U8 tag champ, right? <laughs> hey, I still, ha I still have the trophy for that. <laughs> Once we get to that level, then we, then we know we really have to figure out how we can get this information out to parents and coaches that you know. The kids, at the end of the day, they, they want to have fun. That's really what it's all about. And if you get them in better shape, and then, and we want them to love sports. You know, we're starting to see that there are fewer kids actually playing sports because they're getting so turned off. And nobody's really asking the kids, 
what makes sports fun? How can we make that more fun for you? You know, we always blast the video game field, but that's what they do so well. They engage kids so much in the process of getting to that next level of that game. And I think we need to bring that back into sports. We, we say in our position statement and a lot of the articles that we published that what really needs to be youth-centric, it needs to be focused on the kids. Whereas the way the model is set up now, it really is just a smaller version of the adult model. You know, you have to have not just the games, but then you have to have the tournaments, the playoffs, and the championships. Because what's more important for a parent to be able to walk around town with their son's U10 soccer champ jacket on, right? So it becomes really important for them to say, you know what, my, my kid's a natural athlete just like I was. So we've, we've created that culture. I know that uh, Moving to Live has a sister podcast, FitLab PGH, and I was chatting with one of our interviewees who is the event director of the Rachel Carson Trail Challenge, which is a 30-plus mile hike, not a running race. And he said that he had noticed that many people aren't doing this sort of thing because they enjoy it. They want to be outside in nature, but they're doing it kind of as check the box. It's like, okay, I did a trail challenge. Now I'm going to do a 100-mile bike ride or something else. Whereas people like you and me who are, I guess we could say middle-aged, the activities that we that we do, whether it's strongman for you or for me being outside running and biking, are simply because we enjoy doing that. And if we happen to get an award or a trophy, well, that's just an added bonus. Absolutely right. Yeah, we just love doing it. I just found it to be a fascinating way to train stuff. You know, there is something they call the principle of self-selection, and most of us will choose or sport an activity that we, we tend to be good at, especially as an adult. But it brings up a really good point. Like, kids don't know yet. So to pigeonhole them into saying, well, this is what you're going to be good at when you get older, there's so many other factors that will come into play with their development, maturity, their social stats, the kids they hang around with, whether they have a positive or negative experience on the team, and, of course, whether or not it was fun that will help them determine that later in life. I mean, I fell in love with strength training when I was in seventh grade, so I've been doing it ever since then. So, you know, we kind of get those things that we like, and I've, I've used it as a, as a vehicle to generate a career for myself, essentially, but it, it was always the foundation of what I did for sports. We've got some excellent information for parents to think about. I know I confess to you before we started recording that I am a guilty pleasure watcher of some of these television shows for youth football, and I'm just shocked at what uh, some of the coaches do and how the players and parents are treated. For somebody who's listening to this who is getting involved in coaching and they don't have a background in the strength training and in the coaching like you do or like I do, what are two or three tips that you can give to them so that they can give the kids a fun experience and a safe experience? Yeah, it's a good point. It's, uh, parents generally will, they have a different notion, I think, sometimes. And at the end of the day, I think parents really want their kids to be happy. And, and they sometimes think that what they're doing is really for the best of their kids. So we're, we're certainly not saying that parents intentionally do something to, just because parents want to have the success from it. We believe that parents want what's best for their kids, so we think that by listening to podcasts like this and getting more information from sources, because a lot of the evidence is out there right now that says that it's really all about the kids making it fun for them and bringing it to their level, giving them experiences so that they'll want to be physically active. So we mentioned the NSCA before who now has on their website, there's an LTAD segment where we're starting to provide information for parents. So I think getting information out there that parents can see and recognize and start to turn the tide, so to speak, so that we get kids back into the game so that they can play the sport. Tom Barry, who is a reporter for ESPN, 
who was recently let go, I heard, unfortunately. But uh, he created a, a program with the Aspen Institute called Sport for All. And he has some excellent information on his website in terms of what parents should know, how we could level the playing field for all kids so that sports become fun. Even if you go so far as to look at the U.S. Olympic Committee, all of the national governing bodies of Olympic sports have uh, embraced the long-term athletic development concept. And they each sport within the U.S. movement has created what they call an American development model. So they have a model specific to that sport, but every one of those models has within it the kids between the ages from birth to age 12, more or less. It has overlaps, but up to about age 12, should be sampling a variety of sports. And this is going all the way back to our Olympic movement. Many of those sports then connect to professional sports, but they're saying right now kids should have a variety of opportunities to play a variety of sports across seasons, across different surfaces, and so I think that's an important way for parents to look at it. Go, if all these organizations are saying this is the way to go, parents should should consider that for the best interest of their kids. And I think you mentioned this in the first part of our podcast about early maturers and late maturers. If you look at sports like USA bobsledding, most of the athletes in that sport aren't 18, 19, 20 years old. They're older than that and excelled at other sports, maybe not at the Olympic level, but they had the movement skills developed at a young age to be very good at more than one sport. That's exactly right. That's why we encourage kids to play a variety of sports because all the evidence is suggesting that if you really want to help your kid excel in sports, just like when you're in school, your kids need a variety of subjects in order to succeed in life. Same thing happens with sports. They need to succeed in a variety of sports to be successful as movers as they get older. So even after their sporting days are done, they can still choose activities in which they'll participate that they'll enjoy for the rest of their lives. Probably when you and I were in school, we took skills class in our physical education majors, and they had certain skills that they called lifetime sports. Yeah, and I think that's really a misnomer because that kind of comes at it from that adult perspective. And, and I have this conversation with my students quite regularly. Like if you look at those lifetime sports, Many of them, like you mentioned before, move only in one place. Walking, jogging, running, swimming, hiking, biking. And a lot of them are relatively low-level skill sports. So that shows us that we really have not given our kids the opportunity to create for themselves any sport, any activity. You know, most people wouldn't consider strongman to be a lifetime sport. But, you know, I'm, as you said, middle-age-ish. <laughs> I can still do it because I have those movement skills. I learned those capabilities at a younger age and continue to practice them. Whereas if we don't give our kids that opportunity, we really limit what sports and activities they can participate in as they get older. We've been talking with Rick Howard. Rick is one of the co-authors of the NSCA's Long-Term Athletic Development. He is an amateur lifetime strongman competitor. And he has given us some really valuable information. If you are a youth coach or a parent of a child athlete, I think you want to listen to the whole interview. But I think the key points are educate yourself. And there will be some links in the show notes for you to find information. Make sure the kids are having fun. And probably the overemphasizing thing is don't let your kids specialize in a sport too early or you may find out that you have an adolescent who does not want to be active because they peaked at an early age and don't understand how to do other movement patterns. Rick Howard, thank you for taking time for chatting with Moving to Live. Ben, thank you so much for the opportunity. Really appreciate it. 
Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guests, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to us on Stitcher, iTunes, and Google Play, and be notified about a new episode release. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on social media, Instagram and Twitter, both at underscore mov2liv. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live. We're a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving. Mm